this podcast features forthcoming authors, both professional and student, to be featured in the forum in our print publication, New England Law Boston professors discussing their scholarship, as well as interviews with symposia guests. Good afternoon and welcome to the first New England Law Review podcast of the 2019-2020 year. My name is Brian Edmonds. I am the online editor of the New England Law Review this year, and I could not be more thrilled to serve as one of the hosts of the podcast. Here to discuss his recent article, Kaiser v. Wilkie, More Rumbles of Discord on the Supreme Court, is someone who I think requires no introduction. He is an educator, a scholar, and a pillar of the New England law community. For many students here, he is someone they get to know during their first year as a professor coordinating the lawyering experience, or for those who are lucky enough, constitutional law. For me, I had the absolute privilege of taking his administrative law class last fall, which really has a direct connection to this podcast. So please join me in welcoming Professor Peter Manis. Well, thank you for having me, Brian, and thank you for taking ad law. It was great to have somebody who's very political in the class. Um, it keeps it lively. Now, Professor, before we dive into your recent article, could you give our listeners a summary of your background and how you came to teach here at New England Law? Sure, absolutely. So when I was in college, I actually wanted to be a professor of one sort or another. So I went to law school with that plan in mind. Um, I became an environmental lawyer because I found it very interesting. It was a new field then, so I was an environmental regulatory lawyer. And, um, and then I came over here after a number of years to New England. I've taught environmental law, and of course, it's closely connected with administrative law because it's so regulatory, the environmental field. And I've picked up um, constitutional law because of its obvious connections with administrative law. So that's what I'm doing here. Well, we are thrilled to have you here to discuss your recent article. And I can say from personal experience, having you as a professor is a, is a true treat. So, Professor, your, your recent article discusses the Supreme Court's decision in Kaiser v. Wilkie. Could you just expand and tell the listeners a little bit of what this case was about and how it came before the Supreme Court? Yes, yeah. So the, the facts of Kaiser are kind of in, interesting. Um, they're not really the primary focus of the legal issue, but it makes a good illustration of what's going on there. So Kaiser himself was a Vietnam vet, and when he came back, he applied to the Veterans Administration, a federal agency, to try to receive benefits for problems that he was having that really amounted to post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, in 1982, he was misdiagnosed as not suffering from PTSD. Several decades later, he came to realize that maybe he should apply again. So he had his case reopened by the agency, and this time the agency decided, yes, he was suffering from PTSD. And they started to give him benefits, but he wanted benefits for the period of time between his initial, his initial application and the time when it was reopened. And that's where it becomes an administrative law issue because the Veterans Administration was relying on a regulation that it administered. The regulation said that it could give back benefits, I'm sort of summarizing uh, sort of sloppily here, but it could give back benefits only if there was some relevant information, that was the key word, that had been available at the time of its initial decision that it had not come before the, the deciding body. And Kaiser, Mr. Kaiser was the vet, 
and the VA disagreed over exactly what relevance meant in that context. So relevant could, what Kaiser did was he gave them information that he had been involved in Operation Harvest Moon. So that was a particularly bloody um, that moment in the Vietnam War. And certainly one might think that that was more evidence that somebody would suffer from T PTSD. But the VA said the relevance had to be to the relevant to the psychological diagnosis. And Operation Harvest Moon was relevant to him having seen some, some, some really ugly times um, when he was in Vietnam. So they were interpreting relevant much more narrowly than his, he and his lawyer wanted them to. So when it comes to the court, what the court has to decide is how much deference is it going to give to this agency does it simply have to abide by the agency's view of its own, of how to read its own regulation, or should the court read the regulation itself? Now, is there a specific uh, name for this sort of deference and discussion of the agency's interpretation? Yeah, there, there's, it's actually, it gets complicated fast, but there's a, the initial doctrine is the Chevron doctrine that many people know about due to a 1984 case where the Supreme Court said, hey, when we're in a technical situation, we'll let the agency interpret the statutes. So if an agency has a permissible reading of a statute, the court should abide by it. Now this got, it becomes more complex when the agency is trying to interpret its own regulation, which is what was happening here. And in 1997, there was a case called Auer v. Robbins in which the Supreme Court determined that in fact, courts should show some level of deference to an agency when the agency is reading its own regulations. So it's called the Hour Doctrine, and it's been a troubled doctrine ever since it, ever since uh, 1987. So in a lot of ways, it seems that this Hour Doctrine really is at the center of this case. And, and could you sort of explain just a little bit more how it ties into administrative law as a as a whole? It's it's sort of history. Well, yeah, the Hour Doctrine actually does ha have a pretty lengthy history, and and that was one of the arguments that that the Kaiser case got into. I should point out, by the way, by the time the Kaiser case got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court was not deciding over whether Kaiser you know, deserved to get uh, back payments. They were only deciding on this question about whether the Auer Doctrine should survive. So part of the court wants to overturn the Auer Doctrine and the other half of the court does not want to overturn that doctrine. That's the only question. The Auer Doctrine, was is historical. In fact, some people know it as the Seminole Rock Doctrine because there was a case that in the mid-1940s that is said to have, well, even that, even that, some members of the court say didn't really launch the doctrine, but became known for this doctrine that court should give deference to agencies reading of their regulations. Now, bringing it back sort of to the, to the Kaiser case, how did the court end up holding when they needed to interpret this, this doctrine? Yeah, so the court gets into um, quite a lengthy discussion of the Auer Doctrine and what it is and what it should be with the understanding that other courts have sometimes distorted it. They've, other courts have applied it in the rather simplistic way that I just described it here. But in actuality, um, that Justice Kagan writes an opinion that goes on at some length to explain that the Auer Doctrine isn't just a blanket deference doctrine, that 
courts have to determine, number one, that the uh, regulation is truly ambiguous, and they have to go through an analysis to determine that. And then they have to determine why and how, and how much deference they should give to the agency. So whether this is the official position of the agency, um, whether it's based on agency expertise, special expertise of that agency, and whether it is a fair and considered and long-term judgment of, of that agency. So essentially what Kagan is saying is there's this our doctrine, but it's not, it, it requires judicial analysis and it isn't just a blanket deference doctrine. And was Justice Kagan's opinion the only opinion that was written in this case? No, no. These days, lots of lots of uh, justices like to write. So there were four opinions, but the primary opinion that opposed Kagan's position, well, I should say all of the, all of the opinions agreed that the lower court had to apply the Our Doctrine as described by the Supreme Court. So they all remanded it for another application of the Our Doctrine to the VA's decision in this case, right? But um, the Justice Gorsuch wrote a concurrence that really disagreed fundamentally with Justice Kagan's point of view. He believes that the Our Doctrine, he believes that the Chevron Doctrine, and he believes that all these doctrines, there, uh, there's another related doctrine that um, required judges to give deference to administrative agencies when the administrative agencies read their statutes and read their regulations. He believes those are an infringement on, on, on the judicial role. So Justice Gorsuch's opinion seems to be very critical of these doctrines. Is that uh, safe to safe to say? Oh yeah, yeah. He's highly critical of the doctrine, and nobody is surprised. He has written a number of opinions, including a well-known opinion that predates his time on the Supreme Court, that are highly um, critical of the Chevron doctrine, the Our doctrine when he has a chance, another doctrine that we call Brand X, which is also related to those two. Those trio he feels have really infringed upon uh, judicial autonomy. And speaking. Back to Justice Kagan's opinion, what do you think is sort of most significant about her opinion in the case and how she outlines the way that this, this doctrine needs to be applied going forward? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on with, um, with Justice Kagan. First of all, I think that she accepts that there is an administrative state and she's comfortable with it. She's comfortable with the idea of an executive branch that is made up of elected officials over, like the president, overseeing these appointed officials, who, as long as they are all operating in the sunshine, um, she thinks that there is, this is just part of our system and we should understand it. She thinks that as long as the judicial branch plays a role and plays a significant role, and under her version, it does, it has to determine if the regulation truly is ambiguous and then it applies its test to determine how much deference to give, um, she's comfortable with this idea that agencies are the experts in their areas and that um, some level of deference, which has been given to them for a hundred years or more, um, is appropriate. Justice Gorsuch, another another part, by the way, that, that, that seems to be at the heart of some of this is this idea of stare decisis. And stare decisis is the, is the concept that says that judges should give deference to prior decisions, to precedents that came out of their court or another court, or usually, and of course, of the Supreme Court. And there seems to be an attack on stare decisis that 
Justice Kagan has picked up on, and she is she appears to be determined to push back against that. So one of her issues, a big issue here, was her opinion is if the court can see its way to honoring the precedent, our v. Robbins, it should do that. It should only be in a very rare circumstance, circumstances that she outlines, that a court should overturn its precedent. Gorsuch seems to believe otherwise. Gorsuch seems to express stare decisis as applying more narrowly, narrowly to particular decisions of a case, as opposed to, he calls them, interpretive methodology. And certainly this idea of giving deference to agencies could be cast as an interpretive methodology. So there's a fundamental difference that's come up in at least three or four cases in the past year and a half. And this is heading to a, toward a pitch battle on the court. And you, you mentioned a pitch battle. It really seems that right now, discussions about the Supreme Court always break the judges into the conservative camp or the liberal camp. Right. In your opinion, did the justices' decisions and what opinions they signed on to live up to those individual political ideologies that people seem to associate with them? Yeah, to some extent they do, yes. Uh, now, these idea I, I like that you call it ideologies because sometimes these um, liberal and conservative ideologies on the court don't necessarily co correspond to the type of political points of view that you would, that we think about day to day when we're talking about whether somebody is a conservative or a, or a liberal. But yes, they, the court has divided along these ideological lines. Kagan is considered a fairly moderate liberal on the bench. Um, I think that there's a there's good evidence for that um, over the years. Um, the Chief Justice also is somebody who tends to, right now, he's the fulcrum in between the two camps on, on the bench. And in this, and in this, in this decision, by the way, in Kaiser, he sided with Kagan and the other three who are usually considered liberals on the issue of stare decisis. That's the issue upon which this decision was decided. He doesn't think that our is such a sacrosanct um, case law or theory. So mentioning Chief Justice Roberts, your article talks quite a bit about him as well. And do you do you think that stare decisis was really the key that helped him reach his opinion in this case? Yeah, it is. It 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 really it seems to me that it really is. He points out a few things. He points out first of all that um, Kagan's discussion of how judges apply the Hour Doctrine doesn't really differ that remarkably from Gorsuch's discussion of how courts would decide these cases without the Hour Doctrine. So he says we're re not really that far, far apart. Although he does point out that there is a difference between deference and just respect, between giving deference to an agency's view and just giving it the respect that it's due, which is what, what I mean, there is a fundamental difference there, but he sides um, with her primarily on the, on the story decisis issue. Now, there's a, there's a section of your article that I really enjoyed where you talked about the opinions as honey beating vinegar, barely. Why did you use those adjectives? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, upon reading them, I, I have to admit, when I come at 
reading um, a case. Of course, I've read a lot of these cases. I've been studying ad law for a long time. I have a preconceived notion about the way I think they should come out. And I like certain justices' styles more than I like others. So upon rereading, I think both of the justices really do make arguments, and they make uh, arguments that have uh, some real legitimacy to them. But it seems to me that um, Justice Kagan, Justice Kagan probably has more of an incentive to reach out because she wants to, she, she's got her three and then herself, who she knows agrees with her, and she's writing to get that fifth vote or fifth or sixth vote if she can. And she got it this time and she does so, she writes with a certain humility that I, I like her tone. Um, she's sometimes self-deprecating. She gives examples that are pretty homely and easy to, easy to grasp. And Gorsuch um, can sometimes write in a style that seems more combative. Um, he, in his opening, he says something about how it would be better if, the, if the, maybe next time this issue comes up, the court will have some backbone. This is not something that members of the court who disagreed with him are going to want to hear and, and see in an opinion. You know, he, he kind of really accuses them of not doing their duty and, um, and keeping alive this doctrine that, you know, clearly disgusts him. When you read his opinions more carefully, though, they are primarily arguments on the, you know, that, that he's arguing the law and he's arguing his view of the law. Absolutely. And, you know, having having taken your admin law class, I remember walking away from the class and the final exam with this feeling that deference to agencies, which we've talked about already, is really a reoccurring theme in that area of law. And how do you think that this particular case will impact that theme of deference as the law continues to evolve going forward? Well, that's interesting. You know, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing that, but I think that this, I think that what this, let, let me just tell you what this case caused me to do. This case caused me to reread our, to reread Seminole Rock, to reread Chevron and Brand X, and what I discovered, which is something that I knew before, is that courts really have reduced these opinions to sort of their simplistic deferential role that they've taken on. And courts really do apply them kind of broadly and with, I can apply them broadly and without the analysis that is in those cases, the justification for deference that is actually in those cases that launched these doctrines. So I think that when, you know, when you read this case, you realize, all right, what, what Kagan is doing here is saying deference is appropriate, but let's understand the courts really play a significant role in analyzing a case to determine whether deference is due and whether, you know, whether it's appropriate in this particular case. And I, she revives that, this case revives that, um, rem reminds us of what these doctrines are about and how much analysis is, is really inherent in them. That's really, really interesting. Now, going back to your article, as we sort of have, we've talked through the, the major points, at the very end of your article, you have sort of a hypothesis that there might be a potential motive behind Justice Gorsuch's opinion that he, he may be looking to overturn uh, other precedents, such as, such as Roe v. Wade. What is it specifically about this case that, that led you to that conclusion? Well, it wasn't particularly this case. There, it's a, it's, there's been a string of cases, as I, as I started with, 
over the past year and a half where it seems that some members of the justice are gunning for precedents, are consider themselves to be in a cleanup mode to clean up um, precedents that they don't like. And it's even been, um, it's been queried by Justice Breyer about whether Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the case that is the companion case to Roe v. Wade, is really the goal here. And there are a number of these fundamental liberties and fundamental rights cases that you could easily see members of the court um, going after um, if they decide that stare decisis is to be a very narrowly interpreted doctrine. So if that was sort of indeed a, a motive behind this particular case, do you think that the way Justice Gorsuch wrote this opinion uh, helped that cause, or do you think it may have actually alienated some of his colleagues? Well, I think it, it could go either way. He makes a good case for... He, he certainly makes a per perfectly reasonable case for why our maybe is a mistaken doctrine that should be rolled back. He doesn't get into quite the detail when he's talking about stare decisis, and I can sort of understand why. Um, that would be the type of campaign that I think a justice would launch case by case by case instead of trying to do it all in one case. Um, but he does kind of pitch his idea that stare decisis should apply to particularized decisions in cases and not to interpretive methodologies. That's very, very interesting. And, you know, you, you mentioned your long experience with admin law at the, at the beginning of our podcast. Do you have any predictions about the future of admin law, either, either based on this case or possibly based on the, the relatively new makeup of the court that we have? Well, I think that right now, just if I can just draw back from that a little and look at the question more broadly, we are experiencing a government structure right now in which quite a number of people are being put into position at, at the head of agencies who come out of a field or a background or private sector position where they were actively combating the work of that agency. Now, this can happen. Agencies, are, heads of agencies are put into place by, selected by the president, and therefore the president is going to, a president is going to reflect his or her policy ideas and issues when it comes to agency heads. Um, but it is surprising when the, when it happens to this extent, and we see um, a, an environmental agency or a land man in a, a management agency being headed up by a party that has been, you know, combating those uh, those agencies uh, strenuously for decades. It makes one wonder, you know, how 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 much the policies of these statutes of the enabling acts are are going to be upheld by the agencies that are overseeing them and and how how strong they are to withstand the sort of rollbacks that maybe the agencies are planning so it's been sort of a jarring moment i think for for a lot of agency watchers to see this type of sort of attack from within one might call it um, that's happening on uh, that's happening among agencies i think that on the courts they I, I think that there is a quadrant of the court that 
doesn't trust agencies and wants to see them roll back and thinks of them as doing legislative activities, executive activities, and now quasi-judicial activities, and they shouldn't be doing it. They should just be engaged in technical work. I don't think we're ever going to go back to a time before agencies were making policy, significant policies. I think that's just done and over with. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Now, finally, before we wrap things up, do you have any upcoming projects that you might want to give our listeners uh, a sneak peek of? Anything that you're working on here at the law school or outside the law school? Well, yeah, there. Uh, yes, actually, there's a couple of things. One is, um, one is that this writing this article has gotten me very interested in Justice Kagan. I always suspected that I would be very interested in Justice Kagan. She's written some pretty interesting stuff on administrative law. But I have in the past sometimes written a piece that really tries to dig into a particular justice and look at their look at them sort of rich um, history of what they've written before being a justice and after. I usually focus on 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 their impacts on the environment, which is why. But but focusing on their impacts on on the whole entire administrative state might be interesting. So that's one thing. I'm um, another thing that I've been um, working on sort of for fun in the background is I, I have written a couple of mystery novels and I'm very, I read a lot of mystery novels when I have a chance to. And I've always had this idea. There's a very famous, as, as anybody who reads mystery novels knows, the queen of whodunits is Agatha Christie. And one of her most famous books is And Then There Were None. And, and Then There Were None, this is not, this is not a spoiler because you learn this in chapter one. And then, then there were none. Um, ten people are brought to an isolated place, and they discover that they are there to be executed by some mysterious killer for crimes, in quotations, that they have committed that were not punished by the legal system. And so there, there's kind of a variety of crimes that have, they, they've committed. For example, one person was driving drunk and ran over um, a couple of people and killed them. And in those days, you only lost your license for a certain period of time. Um, somebody else withheld medication, but they weren't a trained professional. That's sort of because they wanted somebody to die so they could inherit. And those sorts of, of, of sins that people committed. And I've always thought it would be interesting to take those crimes that Agatha Christie had decided would not be pun were, were bad acts that ought to be punished, but weren't punishable by the law, and sort of delve into how, whether those people would be on that island today or whether they would have been adequately punished by, his, by the legal system. And so I started sort of categorizing the crimes that, she's talked, that she talks about and looking into um, what the punishment would be in our country. I'm, I'm not going over and doing it under British law in our country uh, today. So well, that's really a fun project. That sounds really, really interesting. And I can, I can honestly say I'd be very interested in reading that. And if one of our listeners wanted to contact you to discuss this piece or other administrative law issues, what would be a way for them to do that? Oh, yeah. They should just contact me by email. It's pmanus at n-e-s-l dot e-d-u. Um, and if you can't remember that or don't feel like writing it down, you can just look on the New England School of Law website and find the faculty page and find me. Fantastic. Email me through that. Now, Professor, thank you so much for taking time. I know you have a very busy schedule, and, and you've taken the time to sit down with us and talk about these issues. And I know with your upcoming projects, we look forward to having you back soon. 
And if any of our listeners would like to read Professor Manis's piece, it is up and published on the New England Law Review website. And if any of our listeners are interested in coming onto this podcast as a guest, or if you have suggestions for future guests, we would welcome uh, that input. So please feel free to reach out. You can do that by emailing forum, F-R, F, I'm sorry, forum, F-O-R-U-M, at N-E-S-L dot E-D-U. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>